Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You may recall we've mentioned this before. Uh, when we first moved into our apartment last fall, Kat started putting a bowl of candy outside the door. Our apartment is its a corner unit, and we're right next to the uh, elevator. Yeah. So people congregate there while they're waiting. And I thought, that's really sweet. It was leading up to Halloween, so it, it seemed appropriate. But she has continued to maintain this uh, candy bowl. Uh, it's not always candy. Sometimes it's like a fruit and nut mix. Sometimes it's fruit snacks. All individually wrapped. Of course. Of course. What do we have out there right now? Um, it is a mix of like Mars candies and Hershey's Kisses. I have uh, figured out why it is that you enjoy this, uh, this action so much. Oh, it, God. It, it's because we're not allowed to have a bird feeder <laughs> on, on the balcony here. And so this is your way of substituting. <laughs> yeah, there have been a couple of times where I've seen Kat peeking through the uh, little peephole on the door. Honey, look, that pair of lesbians is back. Sweetie, I caught myself a red jacket Mexican lawyer. <laughs> he loves those Tootsie Rolls. Um I disagree. That's not what I'm doing. And also shut up. Okay, fair enough. You, you had mentioned that the story that you have for this episode is a little bit uh, dark. It is. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Oh, would you let me? Because, well, of course I would. Um, my topic is a little more positive. Oh, okay. So maybe we could balance so we'll it start out. Start with way. a real down yeah. and then bring you back up. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. We'll so see. Just know that joy and positivity is heading your way. Um, after your story. After my story. Right. Yeah. And JG's going to make it all all right. Well, that's going to be You're going to feel great tough, after tough you listening to him talk. Live up to that. Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froon were going to Panama. 
The two women grew up in the Netherlands and had spent six months planning this trip. Chris was 21, Lisanne was 22, and they planned on spending some time hiking and touring while also volunteering with local children. They were going to be teaching arts and crafts and learning Spanish as part of their trip. It was part vacation, part service trip. Okay. The two were taking tons of photos and updating friends and family on Facebook. And on April 1st at 11 a.m., the two were heading out for a walk in the forest around the Baru volcano with their host family's dog, Blue. The women had written a Facebook post in which they told about their intentions to tour a local village. They also said that they had brunch with two fellow Dutchmen before embarking on their hike. Now, this hike was about four kilometers and shouldn't have taken more than four hours. But the dog returned to the home alone Uh several hours later. The host family searched the area around the home, but they decided to wait until morning to alert authorities because they didn't know what was going on. And these girls weren't exactly their charges. So they waited. The next day... The girls missed an appointment with a tour guide on a private walking tour of Boquete, and the host family reported them missing to the National System of Civil Protection. The next morning, there was an aerial search of the forest conducted, as well as a foot search by locals. But the National System of Civil Protection didn't believe that the women needed help and opted not to get involved. What? Why? How did they come to that conclusion? They just said they probably didn't. Oh, they probably just ran off. You know how emotional women can be. All the time. Yeah. A few days later, Kremers and Froon's families flew to Panama, bringing with them detectives from the Netherlands. Can you imagine the fear that would have filled those parents, realizing that their kids are missing in a foreign country? That must have been the longest plane ride ever. Yeah. They worked with tracker dogs that should have been able to follow trails up to nine days old, but they were unsuccessful finding anything. Wow. Days turned into weeks. And after 10 weeks, there'd still been no sign of Kremers or Froon. It wasn't until 10 weeks after the girl's disappearance that there was any sign of the two when a backpack was found containing a camera, both of their phones one of their passports, and some personal items. Someone had brought it to authorities saying they found it floating along a riverbank. And all of the items inside were neatly packed and dry. Not long after that, a pair of denim shorts that belonged to one of the girls was found zipped and neatly folded on a rock near where the backpack was found. Police immediately, as you can imagine, investigated the camera and the phones and came up with some pretty upsetting evidence. The phones had remained in service for almost 10 days after the women disappeared. Over four days, dozens of attempts had been made to call police, both via 112, the emergency number in the Netherlands, and 911, the emergency number in Panama. Using the call logs, police were able to come up with an outline of the time that the girls spent missing in the forest. The first two emergency calls had been just hours after the two had begun their hike, and that was to the 112 emergency number. But due to the dense jungle, neither of the attempts went through. Lisanne's phone ran out of battery on April 4th. Chris's device was turned on multiple times between April 5th and the 11th, but the pin was incorrectly entered 77 times. Okay, all right. The phone received its last signal check April 11th before the battery died. 
Going through the photos, police found that the first photos on the camera were were taken the morning of April 1st when the girls left for their hike. The photos showed them on a trail near the Continental Divide, you know, doing hiking things, thumbs up, smiles by the river, that kind of thing. But they quickly became disturbing. 80 photos had been taken in the dead of night between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. on April 8th. Dozens of nighttime photos showing the girls' belongings spread out on rocks, plastic bags, candy wrappers, oddly piled mounds of dirt, a mirror, and what looked to be one of the girls' heads. And it looked as though there was some blood in the hair. Oh my God. Soon after the backpack was found, searchers found a shoe behind a tree along the river where the backpack had reportedly appeared. It contained a sock and an intact human foot. A pelvic bone was also discovered, and shortly after that, DNA testing confirmed that they belonged to the missing girls. Going back and investigating the area, more remains were found, but not just of these two girls. Investigators discovered there were also remains that belonged to three unknown people in addition to the two girls. What? Also, Froon's remains looked natural in decomposition. Kremers, however, were white, as if they had been bleached. There were also traces of phosphorus on her bones. And in going over the evidence from their phones, there is a missing picture file. Now, the camera numbers photos in one of two ways, auto-reset and continuous. Continuous keeps the numbers of the files increasing regardless of if pictures have been deleted. Auto-reset will number the next photo taken as one higher than the previous. So if you delete the last photo in a series, the next one you take will have the number of the deleted photo. You follow? Yeah. In this case, the camera was on auto-reset. Photo 508 is the last normal photo taken on the camera. And photo 510 is the first one taken April 8, a week after the girl's disappearance. Okay. 509 is missing. Interesting. Now, for this to have happened, photo 510 would have had to have been taken before 509 was deleted. And keep in mind that if a picture is deleted from a camera, it's still possible to retrieve it. However... They were unable to do so with this particular file, which would imply that the camera had been plugged into a computer when the photo was deleted. Interesting. What does all this mean? Well, it's unlikely that the girls found a Macintosh in the middle of the Panamanian woods. I would I would say that's pretty unlikely. Yeah. yeah. By March 2015, almost a year after the women traveled to Panama, investigators at last reached a conclusion. They said that the women most likely suffered some sort of accident along the trail, but became lost in the forest. Mara West and Jürgen Snorren wrote a book titled Lost in the Jungle, where they claimed that it couldn't have been anything but accidental, attributing their deaths to flash flooding in the area. But the odd photos, the weird placement of the girls' items... Who took those 90 nighttime photos on April 8th? Perhaps the photos served as trail markers 
to help the young women find their way mm. back around if they had seen a particular branch and thought, well, that's noticeable and took a picture of it to keep track of where they were going. Digital breadcrumbs. Exactly. Maybe they were using the flash of the camera as some sort of uh, guide in the night or way to keep animals away. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it seems very suspicious the timing of the camera being used and the photos being taken. Either way, there has been a lot of criticism of how Panamanian authorities handled this case. It wasn't until the girls had been missing for four days that the National System of Civil Protection got involved. Fingerprints found on the backpack not only remain unidentified, and most of the people involved with the case didn't have their prints recorded in the first place. So how could they be identified? Also, the lack of damage to equipment found was suspicious. It was inconsistent with the place where it turned up. If this backpack had been floating in the water for 10 weeks, how likely is it that those phones were still totally usable? And that everything was dry inside the uh, backpack. That's a hell of a backpack. Also, authorities did not follow up on the missing photo, which is super suspicious. Mm. Lawyer Enrique Orocha, who works for the Kremers family, voiced concern about the handling of evidence. He claimed that there wasn't a forensic investigation conducted at the crime scene, that the evidence and its sources remained unverified, and most upsetting of all... Neither of the women's skulls have been recovered. Wow, that is. And yes, when bodies are left in the forest, things happen to their bones. But generally, it wouldn't be their skulls that go missing first. Hmm. There are those that believe that the missing parts of this investigation are exactly where the answers are and that not enough has been done to find those answers. And just with the couple of hours that I spent reading about this, I would agree. So this is uh, unsolved, clearly. Okay, freaks, let's get busy. (laughs) Let's solve this shit. I got my information from All That's Interesting, from Ranker, Forensic Tales, and of course, Wikipedia. Yeah, you were right. That's a, that's a rough one. Sorry. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month 
free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle a few years ago a 67 year old woman named dorothy fletcher was on an airplane when suddenly she had a heart attack the fast-thinking flight attendant addressed the other passengers asking if there was a doctor on the airplane suddenly 15 people stood up it just so happens that the plane was full of doctors on their way to a cardiology conference. Dorothy survived. A number of episodes ago, I did a thing in the middle about uh, a trained dolphin that helped ships in and out of harbor. I think it was in uh, Australia. Robert sent us an email about that. So the military dolphins are generally detect and report. Sometimes they even drop a beacon. However, there is a sea lion program that is worth exploring. The sea lions are trained to cough a locator or an explosive charge into the extremity of a bad guy diver. Robert, what you're telling me is that they train sea lions to cough up a little bomb into an enemy diver's ass? Sea lions are amazing. Nature in general just blows my mind. It blew more than that. <laughs> yeah, Enem enemy diver situation. Right. Yeah. Charles and Anna sent a message on Instagram. Love your show. I'm a nurse and listen to it on my way to work. I saw this and thought it would be interesting for you guys to investigate. It's a story that I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to end up doing it. If you do, <laughs> please say hello to my sweet mini Aussie Tazzy. She too listens while riding in the car with me. Thanks again for providing such a great show. Show. Gracias. Gracias to you, Anna. Did you just aggressively gracias, Anna? Yes. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
the Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Several people have written asking if the curator is straight or gay. What an all candor, we never thought about it. Much. This is The Box of Oddities. Marie Van Britten Brown. That was her married name. She was born Marie Van Britten on October 30th, 1922. And she ultimately married a guy named Albert Brown. And they had two beautiful children. How do you know they were beautiful? In my mind, they are beautiful children. Wow, that is a wild assumption. They lived in a small house that was located on 135th Avenue in South Jamaica, New York. It was a neighborhood at the time. This would have been the early 60s, across from what is now JFK. The airport, not the president. Right. That would have been weird. This neighborhood was an extremely dangerous and violent neighborhood in those days. Violent crime home invasions, rape, even murder was a common occurrence. Very similar to the neighborhood around actual JFK. And Brown saw a lot of results of the neighborhood violence since she was a trained nurse and worked at a local hospital. Yeah. So she would see the end result of, uh, of some pretty violent scenes. From the early to mid-60s, the entire Jamaican neighborhood of Queens was a violent place and growing more violent by the day. In fact, between 1960 and 1965, crime in Queens rose 32%. Wow. She was often home alone, and when she would walk home from her job, she was very fearful of becoming a target. Sure. And even when she was home, that fear didn't go away because it was a sketchy neighborhood. In fact, three different times when she was home by herself, somebody attempted to break in. Oh, you're unlocking all of my fears right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Her only defense was she had a baseball bat. Dangerous neighborhood baseball. Baseball bat's not going to help that much. I mean, it's better than nothing. But And really, in the early 60s, pretty much any neighborhood was dangerous for an African-American woman like Marie. But Marie decided... She wasn't going to just sit by and wait to become a victim. 
She was going to take matters into her own hands. How could she secure her house and make it safe enough so that she could sleep the entire night through without being disturbed by every little sound, thinking that it, it might be somebody breaking in? Mm. We're horrible like that. Sorry about that. The, the fan vent in the bathroom, sometimes when the wind is blowing, it causes the fan to spin backwards. Mm. And I, I'm pretty sure, and I know you feel the same way, every time I hear that in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm fairly certain someone's breaking in. Yeah, I've launched out of bed uh, more than once, with ready a, to protect you. With a baseball bat. So how is she going to keep her apartment and her family safe? In the early to mid-60s, there were very few options. There was no such thing as a home security system. So Marie invented one. In fact, Marie is thought of as the creator of the very first home security system. What? In the early 60s. It started this way with her front door. Her front door had one of those little peepholes like mm. you look through to watch people take candy out of the bowl outside our door. But one peephole wasn't enough for Marie. What she did is she put three in. She had one on the top and then one a little bit below and then one even lower than that. Nice. And that way she could get a clear look at the person's face no matter what they were a child or an adult or tall or short. Right. Plus, when you have a peephole and someone knocks on the door, they know that you're coming to look in the peephole, which provides a great sight to your eyeball for them to shoot you through the head. Yeah, she took that into uh, consideration. She took it an extra step by employing what at the time was cutting-edge technology in the early 60s. Closed-circuit television. What? Girl! She attached a camera to the door that would automatically slide up and down on a track and position itself over the selected peephole. Now, this is really groundbreaking. I am so impressed with this lady. Closed-circuit television had been developed originally for military applications during the Second World War. This was not something you could just go down to the corner store and buy. It was very rare in her day. But she had heard about it at her job as a nurse because there was talk of it being used for medical students to observe surgical procedures. So she was aware mm -hmm. of the technology because of her job as a nurse. Nice. And she was able to access it. So she attached a camera to the door that would automatically slide up and down on a track, mm -hmm. positioning itself over the selected peephole. Then she connected it to a series of monitors, which would allow her to see from out or see outside the door from anywhere in her house. She even had a monitor set up right next to her bed. This woman's a genius. That's how it started. And then she built onto it. She also came up with the idea of installing intercom system at the front door. Nice. So that she could speak with whoever it was outside the door from anywhere in the house. She essentially has a ring camera. Exactly <laughs> right. It's really funny you mention that. In the patent for ring type devices, they cite her patent in it. Stop it. So she has the remote camera hook up with monitors. She has the intercom system hook up so she can see and hear whoever it is at the door from anywhere in her house, keeping her out of potentially harm's way. Amazing. She then, on top of that, added a radio system to it that with the push of a button would call police. This was unheard of. 
In her patent application, which, yes, she got a patent for this, she wrote, quote, The security station may be equipped with video and audio receiving equipment to monitor the video and the audio signals. The monitor of these signals will occur under the control of the house occupant. And this was pretty significant. And the important element was that it was under the control of the house occupant. Her system was becoming quite elaborate. And then she conceived a feature to add on to it that would unlock the door remotely. Unbelievable. Her husband, Albert, was an electrician, or he worked in uh, the electrical field. And so she asked him to design and build this system, which he did. Our current department doesn't have this kind of technology. <laughs> but it's got a candy bowl bird feeder. So they filed the patent application in 1966 for the very first home security system. It was described as, quote, a home security system utilizing television surveillance. Her husband was listed on the patent as well, since uh, he was the technical contributor. Her outline description was, quote, a video and audio security system for a house under control of an occupant. And the system stressed the importance of the homeowner having control of the security system. Uh, this way, they didn't have to rely on the police to respond to the calls. And in that neighborhood, police had a history of very slow response times. Uh, right. And this put complete control in the hands of the homeowner. It took three years for the U.S. Patent Office to grant her the very first patent for a home security system. So it was 1969. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it was really quite a remarkable achievement. The New York Times did a huge article on this. Uh, there's um, pictures of it. You can find uh, archives of it. So cool. And this part I know you're going to love. Um, the patent listed Marie's name first, but the New York Times credited the invention to Albert and his wife, <sighs> Marie. Yeah. The Browns then set about to find a manufacturer to produce this and distribute it. And this is where they ran into um, a series of problems. The biggest problem was that their system, the system that they employed, mm -hmm. was so technologically advanced for the time, it was way too expensive to build. It was prohibitively expensive. Sure. It just didn't make sense. It was way too far ahead of its time. In fact, it took decades for the technology to catch up and costs to drop enough to be able to build a security system like this for private residences and make it uh, economically reasonable. And in fact, it wasn't until the mid-2000s that companies began selling closed-circuit TV for residential consumers at an affordable cost, like Ring, almost a half a century after Marie invented wow. the system. In many ways, Marie did lay the groundwork for products that we take for granted today, like, like you said, the Ring doorbell system. And even though it took so long for the technology to catch up, her patent still has made a mark. And as of today, there are more than 30 U.S. patents that reference her patent filing. That's incredible. And as recently as this past year, Amazon referred to Brown's patent for their wireless speaker devices for audio, video recording, and communication devices. That's incredible. She also received, during her lifetime, an award from the National Scientists Committee. An amazing woman. She passed away in 1999, and 
their daughter, the Browns' daughter, kind of carried her mother's work forward in, in more ways than one. First, she became a nurse, and then she became an inventor <laughs> on her own. I love it. Marie Van Britten Brown, the woman who invented the modern home security system in the early 1960s. Badass. My source information, an article in All That's Interesting, Wikipedia, and Smithsonian Magazine. Love me that shit. So impressed. Well, you're a bit of an inventor yourself. You're always coming up with different ideas for apps or products or... I'm about the customer experience, babe. We need to start writing these down. Not long ago, we talked about how we got a review, a one-star review that simply said, I hate happy podcasters. Yeah. I got a message uh, asking us to please make that into a (laughs) t-shirt. And I got to thinking that maybe we should do like a whole line of bad reviews merch. Well, we certainly have plenty of inspiration there. (laughs) Actually, we're we're really fortunate. Um, We've received so many positive reviews and and we continue to. and, And that really is important to us to help grow the podcast. If you haven't had a chance to just, you know, you want to support us in a quick and easy way, whatever platform you listen on, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever it is. Uh, If you just give us a a nice five-star review and some positive comments, and that helps us grow the show. Appreciate you so, so much. And we'll look into that bad review line of uh, merchandise. (laughs) What? Oh, we'll talk about this on the next podcast. Okay. (laughs) On the next episode. This is hilarious. All right. (laughs) Until then. Uh, Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.